Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, we continue with our study through Romans. And during this sermon, we take a look at the world's justice and how it fails in comparison to God's justice. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7 as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, The Sinfulness of Sin. and thankful note, congratulations to the newest newlyweds uh, in our church family, Nathan and Kaylin, absolutely. It's also pretty exciting that they met here at this church and got married and things, which is the best place to meet spouses. So just remember that as well. So congratulations to you guys. We rejoice with you. Um, Something else that I need to pass along, just kind of part of church family life, those sorts of things affects uh, those of us here and also those who are joining us online and such. I want to address the live stream for just just a second here. The philosophy that drove and drives what we do and why we were doing this um, is that we believe that the Lord's day is set apart by God as a day of worship. Uh, We believe that wherever we are in the world, um, most Sundays, that means we gather with our local church family, but even on vacation, or if you find yourself alone on an island somewhere, the Lord's day is meant as a time to draw near to God. We did the live stream for the purpose of having a way for us to kind of be connected and gather in some way while we were quarantined away from each other. But now that we are back and meeting, and at least for us in Indiana, as of next week, everything is open. We do not want the live stream to then do the opposite of that, if you know what I mean. We, we don't want it to in any way contribute to folks not gathering together. And, and it is um, an exciting thing and we have really rejoiced in, um, felt honored that so many uh, across the nation have been joining with us for these worship services. And we are so glad you have and hope that it has been helpful, but we do not in any way want to discourage gathering with a church family. The church is the blood-bought people of God who gather together in families, who come together, and you really are robbed by merely watching something online as opposed to interconnected fellowship and being with one another. So, So with that, we're gonna give just two more Sundays of the live stream. But let me say a couple things with that, and mostly that'll pertain to those online. If where you are, you don't know of a good church and need help, this is not an empty offer. Contact us. We will help you find one. We'll call churches in your area, ask questions to the pastors, help you find um, a church family that you can unite with. But something else to know, we do have somebody in the church family that has volunteered uh, graciously to serve, to continue to do some videoing of the sermon and then upload it, but upload it after the fact so that it's not happening at the same time. So that Lord willing, you can supplement your growth in Christ. So just know all of those things wanted to pass along. So two more Sundays of that. Next Sunday, we begin back discipleship groups starting up again, children's Bible study and the nursery rolling forward. All right, with all of that, now let's look at the word. Romans 7, this is part four, and uh, we will finish up this section of verses one through 13. So let's read this section one more time, and then we'll pray and ask for God's help. So Romans 7, beginning in verse one. Or do you not know, brethren, 
For I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Our Father in heaven, uh, Lord, a bunch of sinners are gathering together to draw near to you. Father, and we pray that you will have grace, you will show mercy to us, O Lord. Father, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart that is able to respond. Father, in this room and joining us online, we're all in different places spiritually. Some here have already been converted, responded to the gospel, trusted in Christ to be saved, not because we're smarter or wiser or godlier, but simply because we've seen your offer to come and be forgiven and we wanted it. And so God, we come by your grace and others have not yet responded. And Father, we pray that they will. God, I pray that in this time, souls would be saved, that those that have not yet turned and trusted in Christ, knowing they need to be saved, specifically calling out to you, God, we pray that they would do that in this time. So Father, whatever is needed, wherever all of us are, show us your truths, transform us and, and give us grace, oh God. We pray you be pleased as we are sanctified and built up and enabled to live for your glory. Please, God, help me, Lord. I just tremble from the, for the task ahead, oh God. I have no right to take your words on my lips, but Father, this is what you want. So please give me grace to be able to teach in a way that's helpful, not say stupid things that are unhelpful or wrong or any of this. Father, help me to teach your word rightly. So please bless this time, oh God. We pray this through Christ.
Amen. When we began this section of verses 1 through 13, we said that while many truths are taught, there are four main points that are made. First, we saw that for those in Christ at the, at the moment of justification, we have been freed from the law that we were once under in the way that we were once under it, and we are now bind and joined to Christ. Secondly, before we were justified, while we were still in the flesh, we were under the law of God in a way that meant if you obey it, you live. If you disobey, you die. And we were in, when we were in that unconverted condition, sin ruling our hearts, we responded to the law of God with rebellion. But for those in Christ, at the moment of justification with everything changing and God giving us new heart, new desires, and we have a new relationship to God and his law, we now serve in a newness and joy of the spirit. And so we are, we rejoice and we want to obey God's law. That was the second one. Thirdly, the point was made, and we're going to interact with it again today because it's part of the fourth point we're going to look at, that just very simply, God's law is good. God's law is holy. It is righteous. It is good. It is the standard of what is justice. We understand God and his character and what he wants for us from his law. And so today we're ready for this fourth and final point in this section here, which is the sinfulness of of sin. And I realize, you know, when I say that, you'd be like, okay, thanks, pastor. That's really helpful. The sinfulness of sin. What do you mean by that? Let me, let me just in a few sentences kind of, kind of show the central idea of what we're looking at here. If the law of God had never been written out in scripture, it still would have existed. God has written it on our consciences. This is part of the way that God has communicated the knowledge of himself. However, if God had never written out his law in the scripture so that we saw it clearly, what would we think of ourselves? You know what we would have done. We would have uh, de denied that we were in any wrong. We would have called ourselves good and righteous and always believing I'm good enough for God, good enough for heaven, all of these things. But God wrote out his law with clarity, showed us what what sin and evil deserves. And what it does is it reveals to us our sin. And there are many passages of the Bible that show that part, but Romans seven takes us a step further and shows us not only do I have sin, it brings us to know it's terribleness. Like why sin is awful, that it is ugly. See, see, not only does the law of God show me, okay, I've broken this and this and this and this, it's possible to see that I've broken commandments and laugh about it. But what the law of God does instead is it shows us I have broken these things. I am a lawbreaker and brings me to feel remorse over that. Shows me my legal guilt. And when I see my legal guilt, I feel guilt. I know that I am guilty before God and this brings a, a burden. It brings shame. And all of that is unpleasant and painful and is rejected by the masses today. Oh, God doesn't ever want you to feel anything like that. Yes, he does. But he doesn't want us to stay there. 
What the burden of the guilt of the law does is make us hungry for some way to be cleansed, some way to be right with God. How can I have relief from this? And then we run to Christ. The gospel is revealed that there is a way that God has made for your burden to be removed, your sins to be cleansed, your guilt to be absolved, for God to accept you, not only let you into his heaven, but adopt you as sons and daughters. And when we see this and run to Christ, our guilt is removed. And so the, the law serves us in this way to push us, urge us, point us towards Christ. So that's the primary truth we're seeing here. Paul is talking about how the law helps us see the sinfulness, the terribleness of sin and what that does for us. But I want to say one more just introductory word before we begin. You know, the truths that we have been seeing in Romans 7 and all throughout the book of Romans, they're showing us things even beyond salvation. Like the number one thing that is happening here, and it is the most important, is that we are learning about the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are learning about how God saved your butt from hell. And we rejoice in that and we worship. And if that were all that we see, that would be enough. But we also have to understand this. God is teaching us how to see, how to see See reality for what it really is. See this world. See who you are with a clarity that puts the world to shame. But by studying these truths, truths that are being neglected so often. So instead of Romans 7, it's just, you know, these trends of churches having superhero Sunday. Wear your school colors to church Sunday. Woo! Like we're not learning how to see through these things. By studying this stuff, the Christian who studies these things and does the work of meditating in the night watches, of thinking on God's word, is able to look at America the week of June 28th, 2020, and see with clarity what is happening while everybody else screams in ignorance and fumbles in blindness. Our nation cannot figure out justice. Can you? Yes, you can. If you've been walking with us, you've been thinking on the word because God has given you a foundation of what is righteousness. God reveals it. What is justice? Our world cannot figure out what is good. Did, did you know that Liberal churches, the churches that deny the scriptures, do you know that they actually come together for conferences and ask the question, how do we know what's good? Like we in this room, like our eight-year-olds can look at them and go, I can tell you what is good. And they go, I'm not joking, by the way. Like literally show up for conferences and ask the question, you know, if we know the Bible's not good, how do we know what is good? You know what is good. Micah 6, he has told you, oh man, what is good. God has revealed his character. He has revealed what is right and good and beautiful in his law. And we see this. God is giving you eyes to see. And so my, my point in all of that is stay with us. 
stay with us. Keep going deep to know the scriptures. If along the way I get it every once in a while, you know, we could be like, pastor, we've been in Romans seven for four weeks. Like, like what's the point? Turn on your news and then turn it right back off again. Okay. Look at a nation that can't figure out how to think and rejoice that your God is showing you reality. He's showing you how to think, how to see, and we see his glory. This is our father's world, it is him, and this world is being given to us, it will be ours. He is showing you what it is and how to think. This is how we fight, this is how we battle, this is how we learn how to think. So this morning, with this point, I wanna do three things. I want to walk us through the remaining verses that we haven't covered yet, in our study. And then I'm going to kind of expound upon this fourth point a little bit so that we understand it and then try along the way as well to sort of show how this applies to how we see and think in this world. So point number four, the sinfulness of sin. Uh, start with me in verse seven. So, so seven through 13 is what we haven't covered yet, at least the specifics. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. By the way, when he says law there, if you've not been with us, this is not speaking about the laws of a nation. This is not speaking about United States' law. This is God's law. God's law revealed in scripture. Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. All right, so just quick recap, what does he say that the law does? Well, you remember from our studies that the law serves as a map, a mirror, and a mentor. The, the main thing that Romans 7 has been showing is this mentor part, shows us what is right, what is righteousness, the commandments of God. I see that I break them, and I see that I will not be right with God based on that. I need another way, and it is a mentor, a tutor that puts its arm around us, or in some ways kind of slaps because it hurts, sending us on to Christ. The law of God that we are born under, the situation we're born under is, if you obey it, you will live eternal life. If you disobey it, you will die eternal death. We need some new way to be right with God. The law of God written out in scripture not only shows us that we have sin, it brings us to feel its weight. And that leads us to at the end of verse seven there, why Paul uses the example that he does about coveting. Guys, this is genius. When he, when he brings up a commandment, why does he bring up this one? Like, why, why didn't he bring up some other place of the law? This is, this is brilliant. And here's why. If you read the Ten Commandments, which is a, the greatest summary of righteousness in existence. It's not all the law, but it's a great summary of the law of God of righteousness. There is a way that you can read them. It's the wrong way. It's dishonest, but you can kind of, you know, twist the Bible, squint your eyes just right, and you can read it in a way, the first nine, in a way that makes you think that you have kept them. If you interpret them externally, which is what the Pharisees did. This is what the Pharisees did. Okay, so take the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. You can tell yourself, if you look at that just externally, I ain't never stabbed nobody. I have kept that law. I am 
righteous. But you can think about every single one of them, the first nine, in that same kind of external way. So, so think about them with you. And this is what the Pharisees did. And this is going to help you when you read the Gospels and you see Jesus interact with the Pharisees and he's exposing things. This is what's behind it. Think, think through them all. You shall have no other gods before me. You know, there's a way you can read that and say, huh, I have never attended a pagan worship service. I've kept it. Number two, you shall not make any graven images, either of a, an idol, a false god, or even of the true God. You can say, I have never sculpted an image, therefore I have kept it. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Pharisees actually uh, practiced that, that word Lord in the Old Testament, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the Hebrew word Yahweh. Well, they just said, we'll never pronounce it at all. Therefore, I have kept the third commandment. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. If you remember, the Pharisees had gone through the, and, and made a list of dozens upon dozens of rules, things like you're not allowed to look in a mirror on the Sabbath because if you did, you might see a gray hair. And if you see a gray hair, you might pluck it. And if you pluck it, you have harvested on the Sabbath. And so they would go through a Sabbath day and not look in a mirror and say, I have kept the Sabbath. Honor your father and your mother. Something that's going to come up later in the sermon today is that actually in the Old Testament, God had said that if you physically assault your parents, that was actually a capital offense. Well, I've never punched my dad. I have kept it. You shall not murder. We already talked about that one. You shall not commit adultery. Oh, I've never done that. You shall not steal. Huh, never robbed a bank. You shall not bear false witness. Well, one of the things that we see that the Pharisees did there as well is, you know how whenever you were kids, you might uh, cross your fingers and put it behind your back whenever you were going to tell a lie. And there was like this, for some reason, this weird superstition. We said, it's not really a lie when you do that. They came up with things like that. They said, if you swear by the temple, you don't really have to tell the truth. But if you swear by the gold in the temple, well, then you have to keep your word. They kept, they made up all this nonsense, all as ways to externally say that they had kept the law. So you can do all of that. You can do all of that externally with the first nine, but here's the, here's the, here's the point. But when you come to number 10, when you come to the 10th commandment, it drives a dagger in your self-righteous heart because the 10th commandment is you shall not covet, which is an internal thing. God is commanding us how to think, what to experience. God is commanding us about desires that maybe don't even get verbalized. And what happens is when you meditate on number 10 and the light bulbs begin to go off and we learn how we should read the first nine, which by the way, this is what Jesus did so much, like the Sermon on the Mount where he walked through, you shall not murder. And what does he show? You shall not murder, not only regards to stabbing someone, you shall not hate in your heart. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall live at peace with everyone that you can. And even those that you can't live at peace with, you are to forgive and pray and love even your enemies on and on. He does that with adultery. He does that with lying. He goes through all of these kinds of things. I've rabbit trailed myself so much. I don't remember where I am. But the point here is the 10th commandment of coveting reveals that the first nine 
are to be interpreted internally. And then when you go through all of them again, like Jesus teaches us to, we start to see I've broken every single one of them. I've never attended a pagan ritual, but I have sure in my heart loved things more than God and I have broken the first commandment. And you go through every single one of them. To adultery, Jesus taught us that even to lust after another is a form of adultery. Yes, it is a diminished version in seed form, but it is that category. I have never murdered anyone, but I have hated and held bitterness and unforgiveness in my heart. I have broken this. Why does Paul bring this one up? Because it is revealing it is revealing so much more. If we had more time on another day, I'd love to walk us through the Sermon on the Mount and see how Jesus walks through six, seven, eight, and goes through each of these commandments and walks through and shows how to interpret them. But here's the point. Paul uses the 10th commandment because it teaches us how to read all of them. And he says, I would not have known about coveting if the law had not told me this. And then we come to verse eight. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. Now, what, what does he mean by that? Coveting of every kind. Well, you remember from several weeks ago that we saw that when we were in the flesh, did not have the spirit of God, we rebelled against God's law and had an antagonistic spirit against it. And it actually made me want to sin more. But then he says it produced coveting of every kind. What, what does that mean? Well, just some of what we have just been saying. Coveting, lust, wicked desire is at the heart of all varieties of different kinds of individual sins. To, to, to lust for a woman is to covet her. To covet money is greed. To covet honor, glory, spotlight. I, I, I want attention. This is pride. Adam and Eve coveted the fruit because they wanted to become like God. Achan coveted treasures in Jericho and, sto and so stole Ahab coveted Naboth's vineyard and so killed him. Amon coveted Tamar and so raped her. Absalom coveted his father's crown and sought to usurp the throne. Ananias and Sapphira coveted applause from the church and money at the same time and so lied. And the rich young ruler coveted his wealth. And by the way, think on that one for a second. The rich young ruler. You know, whenever you read the Bible, we always got to be asking questions. And sometimes we ask a question, we get confused and it doesn't get answered for like years later. Just keep thinking on it. Just keep working. For years, the account of the rich young ruler bothered me because of one part of it. Your rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to have eternal life? What do we think Jesus would say? Believe and you will be saved. It's not what Jesus says. What must I do to be saved? And Jesus brings up commandments. That's confusing itself, but he brings up several commandments, but watch this, understand this. Jesus is testing him and Jesus is helping his heart to understand where he is. He brings up commandments that we have all broken, but commandments that if you read it externally, you can convince yourself that you've kept it like murder. Jesus brings up, he says, you know, the commandments you shall not you shall not murder. 
And so whenever Jesus said this, what the rich young ruler should have said is, yes, but I have broken the commandments. What must I do now? And Jesus would have said, now you're ready to understand the grace of the gospel and to believe and be saved. But instead, how did the young man reply? All of these I have kept my whole life. But part of my question, you know, that I ask was, all right, he asked for how to have eternal life and Jesus responds with works. That kind of sounds like salvation by works. So what is happening here? Understand what is happening. That's not what it is. Jesus is working to expose the young man's heart through the use of the law. Jesus brings up commandments. The rich young ruler wrongly says, I have kept them. And so what does Jesus do? He brings up the 10th. Young man, go sell everything you have give it away and then deal with your coveting and then come follow me. Jesus exposed the young man's heart by the law. That's what Paul is saying that the law does for us. The law reveals our sinful condition. Now look at verse nine with me. Something difficult is said here in verse nine. This is a, this is a tough one when you're reading the Bible. This is a tough one here. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. If Paul was born under the law, like you and I are as well, born under the law of God, well, when was he ever alive and apart from the law? It's kind of a difficult verse there. Well, it's possible that he's kind of just speaking theoretically. It's possible. It's also possible that he's saying something like what he said back in chapter five, uh, whenever he said, I, maybe he's saying, I was once alive in Adam, but now I'm dead in Adam. But I, I don't believe that's what is being said here. The general consensus of the Bible scholars that I respect believe that Paul is speaking figuratively here. That he's speaking in the sense that he did not realize his death. Before he understood the commandments, before the 10th commandment had ever driven the dagger home in his heart, he thought of himself as alive. But when the commandment came in the sense of the light bulb coming on, then I died. He realized that before God, he was dead. He realized his legal guilt and it killed him figuratively, enabling him to then understand the gospel. I believe that's the meaning. And then look at verse 10. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. Remember, when God gave the law, the, the, just the basic gist of the law is obey it and you will live, disobey and you will die. But when sin raises its foul face and breaks the commandment, the law shows us that we have broken it and death comes. Our realization of death comes. And then verse 11 for sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Death has come to us because or through the law, but, but listen, it's not the law's fault. It is my sin's fault. It is my heart. It is myself, my responsibility. The law by itself won't kill you. It's when our sin meets the law. It's when I rebel against the law. Don't be blaming God's law. Don't be thinking of God's law as unfair, which is sometimes the response. 
Sometimes whenever we are doing evangelism and we begin to show what the Bible says about certain things, the response is, that's not fair, and then anger against the law. Don't be angry about God's law. God's law is righteous, good, and just. The problem is us. And then look at 12 and 13. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin. In order, so here's the why. Why did God give the written law? What were the purposes behind it? In order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. God wants to reveal sin's true nature. God wants us through the scriptures, through understanding the law, what is absolute justice, wants us to understand sin's soul-destraying awfulness, what it is that makes it terrible. And by the way, one of the ways that it does that is not only does God's law reveal commandments, it also tells us here is what is deserved if you break them. And this is one of the ways that we come to understand the terribleness of sin, maybe more than any other way through the law. It's that not only is it revealed, it's that we see what the punishment ought to be. And, and catch this, both here on earth and eternally. What sin deserves here on earth reveals its awfulness, but also what it deserves eternally. So let me start with the eternally, which is where our minds as Christians usually kind of goes. We understand Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, eternal death. That is another way of describing hell, the receiving of the wrath of God for all of eternity. This is what sin deserves and meditating on the awfulness, the terrifying reality of hell and then shuddering will help us to understand the awfulness of sin. If sin deserves that and not a slap on the wrist, then sin is a bigger deal than I've ever considered it to be. And so that's why on different days we spend time meditating and thinking through what the Bible says on hell and its terribleness. It's not to try to be mean and scowl. This is showing us reality and we see the terribleness of sin. But there's something else here as, as well. The law shows us what sin deserves even in this age. So eternally, Sin deserves wrath and judgment. But as God revealed the law at Sinai, he also shows what sin deserves on earth. And as he would show us what justice even on this earth would look like, we come to realize more of just how big of a deal sin is. The law is one of the most misunderstood parts of the Bible. Uh, just, just to be quite frank, I'm about sick to death of the law of God being blasphemed, even by those who claim the name of Christ. Of this constant, well, that's when God was mean, and now he's just nice in the big grandpa in the sky. No, the law of God is eternal. Jesus said, not one jot and tittle will be destroyed until all is fulfilled. 
The law of God is still the standard of what is righteous, what is just. The law revealed is here's what it would look like. Strict justice, no mercy. Here is what it would look like. And as we look through it, we see these things. You know, whenever you go to the law, Exodus, you know, I'm particularly talking about Exodus 20 through 23. You know, more was revealed in the book of Leviticus about ceremonial parts, about how they were to worship. In the book of Deuteronomy, what Moses does a lot is he will take the law and then he preaches on it. So he'll show like, all right, here's a category of sin. And then he'll explain more of here's what's happening with that commandment. But particularly 20, Exodus 20 to 23, as God just rattles off thou shalts, thou shalt nots and case law. He, if someone does this, then here's what they deserve. When you read through it, what is the normal reaction? Well, that seems mean. That seems harsh. But guys, we have to see the whole point is that I do not have the right to come to the living God and tell him your ways need to match up with my infinite wisdom. The whole point is God from heaven, the one who holds the universe in the palm of his hand, reveals to us, here's what's righteous. You need to get your thinking to match my law. Guys, when we read the law, okay, for you who have been a Christian for several decades now, do you remember the first time you read through that section? Do you remember all the objections that your heart had? Do you remember all those places that made you squirm? Like, hmm, you know, I don't know about this one. First of all, know that a lot of times just two minutes of some explanation can help understand some things. So for instance, there's all kinds of parts in the law that I'm tempted to just really talk about right now. Some difficult parts that with a couple minutes of explanation, you're like, oh, okay, well, that makes more sense now. But we also have to understand that when God says this deserves death, this deserves to be publicly flogged in the city streets, that God's not being mean. The whole point is, this is what justice is. Our culture absolutely cannot get their minds around what justice is. And sadly, even within the church, there is so much of this shying and running away from the law because of misunderstanding it. When, when the whole book of Romans is built upon the fact that you are to study and know the law and see that it is good. We have to understand what it is. We've, we've, made, we've seen the point in the book of Romans that we Christians now in Christ, we are no longer under the law like we once were. But if you remember in that sermon from several weeks ago that the law is good, we see that the New Testament constantly points us back to the law to say that the law still informs us. The law still teaches us. The law still shows us things. And one of the ways that it informs us is in regard to justice, civil law, and case law. All right, so here's a for instance. What should intentional murder deserve? What should it get? All right, what about kidnapping, human trafficking? You know, because there's something it would receive in this nation, and then there's something that is revealed. What should it get? Here's another. Two weeks ago, an 88-year-old grandmother had thieves breaking into her store to rob her, 
She shot one and now she's in prison. Is that justice? Is that right? What should happen? What is justice? And here's the point that we're making. These things should receive what God says they should receive. But you will just never stop encountering people who are just all the time running away saying, yeah, but that doesn't matter anymore. That's, that's the old, that's the old. Accusing it of being harsh. It's not harsh. The point is, this is what is strict justice. So what about something like kidnapping? Someone comes and kidnaps your eight-year-old little girl. What should that man receive? Well, here's what God reveals in scripture. Kidnapping was one of the crimes that deserved the death penalty. Now, as soon as you say that though, what's another one of the objections? Yeah, pastor, but everything got the death penalty in the Old Testament. No, it didn't. Just people say the craziest things about the law. It's so misunderstood. I was sharing the gospel with a woman one time and got to talking and she was all like, oh yeah, I know the Bible backwards, forwards. I've studied it every day for 30 years. And then she said something like, you know, the other day I was reading that part where if somebody fell off your roof, you had to give them your firstborn child. That's not in there, by the way, if you didn't know that. Like people just say the craziest stuff. It's not studied. It's not true that everything got the death penalty. Um, according, you know, different people give different categories. Here's, here's mine. I do want to tell you from the law of God, here is, here are the categories of crimes that brought the death penalty in Old Testament Israel. I've got six categories. Here's how I have them divided up. Number one, intentional murder. Number two, to deliberately blaspheme the name of God. Now, Moses preached and showed some of the ways that that could happen. Things like offering sacrifices to false gods. Things like intentionally profaning the Sabbath. You get the idea. Sorcery. But it's intentional blasphemy. Number three, adultery and lewd sexual deviances. Things like bestiality are mentioned in this. Homosexual acts are included in this. Number four, physical assault or curses against your mother and father. God actually said that on earth, that deserves the death penalty. Now listen, that's not 10-year-old little Johnny who smarts off to his mom, okay? We're talking about grown people, okay? But God did even say that to curse your mother and father was a capital offense. I see a lot of smiling dads right now um, looking at their kids, okay? To curse mother or father, that is one that God said. Number five, kidnapping was a capital offense. And then number six, a way that kind of sums up some things is a persistent lifestyle of lawlessness. And what that means is, is even if someone committed crimes that each one didn't deserve it, if they just kept going back, kept going back, would not leave law breaking that eventually a point came that with humility and sadness, that person was to be put to death. And so listen and understand, according to strict justice, no mercy, no getting better than what you deserve, all of these would receive the death penalty. So to make a couple points from that, number one, let me ask you this question. Does our society do this? Not even close. We can't even clarify that murdering and dismembering babies ought to be stopped 
The point I'm making is the laws of a nation don't necessarily match up to the laws of God. The laws of nations can be wicked. But do we practice this? No. But if I ask the question, why? It's because sinful man doesn't understand justice and oftentimes doesn't like it. Now there's a self-righteous kind of sin that loves to dole out justice. Yeah, kill them all. That's a self-righteous, arrogant, condemning others kind of approach that misunderstands justice and justifies their own selves. But then there's another side, there's a different kind that doesn't like justice, just, just wants everything to, just a little slap, just a, just, a, just a little bit here. But here's one of the main points I'm trying to bring out from this. As we read the law and we see all of those things that would bring a capital offense, it brings us to understand the severity of sin. We understand that sin is not something to be laughed at. We understand that sin is not something that's just uh, okay for just one of these little, little cliches that sometimes float around the church. Oh, you know, well, we all make mistakes. It's okay. No, sin is something to be grieved over because how does God view it? God views it that not only in eternity to deserve, does it deserve this, but even on earth, it deserves this. And we're brought to see the terribleness of sin and to know sin, to know your sin and to feel the weight of my disobedience and how big of a deal, the seriousness, the terribleness of my sin. I won't do it until I understand God's law and what is strict justice. And it's not just knowing about the existence of our sin. Nothing good will ever happen until we comprehend the ugliness of my sin personally, comprehending that legally I am guilty before God and then I know my guilt and feel that guilt. My conscience is afflicted. Then I will run to Christ. And then as a Christian, as we live, God doesn't want us to live in a perpetual state of shame and guilt, but our consciences do need to be afflicted in those times that we engage in it so that we will not, but then we come and we confess to have our consciences cleared again and again. The law of God helps us feel our guilt. Before you come to Christ, even when you don't feel guilty, you are legally guilty. So, so I, I speak to you, everybody's in a different place spiritually. If you have never turned to Christ to be saved, you may not feel guilty, but you are legally guilty before God. And you're gonna stand before him on the day of judgment and you are going to receive justice. You are gonna receive the just punishment for your sins, which is an eternity in hell. That needs to do something to your heart. That needs to grieve you. The New Testament says that there's a good kind of grief, remorse that leads us to repentance. You need to feel this. But Jesus came in order to deliver you from your guilt. Christ came in order to pay for, take away, ransom, bring the justice for your legal guilt. If you will respond to him, if you will come to Jesus, trust in Christ, 
turn to him, believing on him to be saved. You turn to bow the knee to follow after him. Your legal guilt will be taken away and God accepts you with a smile, adopting you as a son or daughter. He has a kingdom prepared. He is giving you a world of riches that just we cannot even fathom. He is lavishing grace on all who come to him and trust in him. And once you realize that, well, then the guilt that I feel will dissolve. But understand this, you are not getting this apart from Christ. We all know that the popular opinion of the world The most popular religious idea is everybody's fine. Nobody needs anything. You're all good. You're not getting this apart from being attached to Christ. You must turn to him. But if you will believe, bow the knee, call out to him to be saved, he will in an instant give you grace, forgive you of your sins, and then begin the work of transforming your life. Turn to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in what you have done for us. Father, we um, are amazed the more and more we study, the more and more we see how complex it all is and what you have had to accomplish in order to save us. Our gratitude and worship grows more and more. Father, I pray that the, the believers, your sons and daughters, We will live in gladness and rejoice in what you have done. Father, I pray that you will come to any who are listening and have not yet turned to Christ. Please, God, bring them to just be miserable in their guilt and shame until they find the remedy, until they come to Christ. Please do not let up on them. Father, we pray that you would even increase the conviction that they feel that they would turn to Christ to be saved. Father, we pray that you will give us your blessing as we leave. Help us to live out this week for your glory in light of these truths. And we pray all this through Christ. Amen. God bless you all. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.